Good evening. It is so good to see each one here on this Tuesday night. My, what a fine crowd we have present. We're so thankful that you have taken time out of your busy schedule to set aside some time during this, the middle of the week, in which to assemble with the Lord's people and to open the Lord's Word and to study therefrom. We truly appreciate all those who are here, both home folks here at Center Grove and especially those visiting with us tonight, whether from the community roundabout or from sister congregations throughout this area. Thank you so much. Tonight I'm doing something uh, really very different from my usual habit. In that, I would like to preach the first point that I've intended for tonight's sermon before giving you the title and the topic. And so I know maybe a few of you, perhaps in the audience, you like to take notes, and that, that really encourages me. I like to encourage people to take notes if they're inclined to do so. So what you need to do is just leave the top blank. Just leave that area for the title blank for the time being. And let's get right into point number one tonight. Point number one would simply be labeled, The Love of God and the Mission of of Christ. The love of God and the mission of Christ. And as we develop this first point, we're going to do so from the writings of John the Apostle. Open your Bible with me first of all to 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 4 and we'll begin reading here at verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, and the idea seems to be not that we loved God first, but that He loved us. God instigated this process, God initiated this process and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I don't know that we could select a better three verses to set forth both the love of God, the love of God the Father in sending His Son, notice that in verse 10, and then also the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word's a word that we don't use very often, but propitiation means a sacrificial satisfaction for sin. Write that down if you'd like. That's what propitiation means. A sacrificial satisfaction for sin. Man's sin, yours and mine, it aroused the holy anger and the holy wrath of God. Because God is a holy being. God is good. God is contrary to everything evil. You and I were created by God and created in His image. And what that means is, is when you and I sin, we actually violate God. Now think about that. That is a personal affront to God when you and I who are formed in His image 
When we sin against him, that is a personal affront against God, and it arouses his holy wrath. Well, there must be satisfaction for that. Else, God would not be a just God. And if God were not just, then God would not be holy. And if God were not holy, then God would not be good. And if God were not good, God wouldn't be God. And so how grateful we are that Jesus came on the mission to be the sacrificial, it took his dying on the cross, satisfaction paying the price for our sins. How wonderful that is. I want you to notice with me the love of God. God loves you and me more than we can know. And we talked about that two evenings ago, Sunday night. The incomprehensible love of Christ of which we read in Ephesians 3 and verse 19. The love of God, yes, and the mission of Christ that ensued. But now, let's go elsewhere in the writings of John. Back up with me all the way to the Gospel of John. Let's go all the way to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And having noticed the love of God and the mission of Christ, I now want us to look at two instances out of the ministry of Jesus Christ which are very revealing to us about His mission. We know that it was prompted by the love of God, but something very interesting about that mission. In John chapter 5, notice at verse 5, we're introduced to a man. A certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. He has been laying, as it were, beside this pool uh, for a long time. We know that he's had this infirmity thirty-eight years. He's unable to walk. He's unable to ambulate or to carry himself about, so to speak. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man or the powerless man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled here at the pool to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Obviously, as I referred to a moment ago, his movement is impeded. His movement is hindered. And so always someone seems to beat him down into this pool. Verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now that's where we'll stop our reading for just a moment. But needless to say, because of the timing of this great miracle that Jesus did, his Jewish enemies, his Jewish antagonists are going to get into an uproar. And you can basically read about that in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. But notice in verse 13 that when all of this starts up, that Jesus had conveyed himself away, verse 13, perhaps suggesting to us that this is one of the miracles of Jesus that we don't really think of as a miracle. But it seems possible, at least, from the way this is worded in verse 13, that when all of this tumult started, that Jesus perhaps just miraculously disappeared. And Jesus went away and got out of that situation. That is indeed... A possibility. But now pick up reading with me at verse 14. 
Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. No doubt this man whom Jesus had healed was so thankful for this love and this grace shown him by Jesus Christ that he's gone to the temple now praising God and giving thanks, we would assume. And Jesus said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. If you write in your Bibles, and I encourage that as well for the sake of making permanent notes, you might underline those three words Jesus gave, sin no more. Now keep in mind that the love of God has sent Jesus into this earth on a mission. Jesus has come on this mission to seek and save the lost, to pay the ultimate price upon the cross so that sinners might be saved. And yet that Prince of Peace, that Lord of Love, is telling this man, sin no more. File that away. Now turn over with me three chapters into chapter 8. In John chapter 8, there is another instance of someone who encounters Jesus. This time, not a man, but a woman. And this woman is probably brought before Jesus quite unwillingly. Pick up with me here and begin reading, if you will, at verse uh, 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, right there before Jesus and apparently before everybody else, think how humiliating this would have been, how embarrassing and reproachful this would have been, but they set her in the midst, and they say unto Jesus, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Taken in the very act of adultery. Now, a lot of people have questions about this passage and, and really what ensues as you continue reading even beyond verse 4 here. But be it noted that you and I understand it takes two to commit adultery, right? And the one who is conspicuously absent is the man. And so automatically Jesus knew, and Jesus would have already known anyway, but automatically you and I ought to know that everything is not on the up and up with this situation. Okay? That this is not a sincere proceeding. This is not a just proceeding. All these Jewish leaders are wanting to do, the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3, all they're wanting to do is to put Jesus on the spot. They, they, they want to put Jesus in a bind or to, to trip him up in his words and in his teachings. And that's important that we understand that and that we appreciate that as we take in this text and this context. Now skip down with me. I, I trust that you know the account and I encourage you to read uh, the remaining verses from verse 5 onward. But just pick up with me at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, remember Jesus had said, let him that is without sin among you cast the first stone. None of them could do that because they had all sinned seemingly in not bringing the man. This is unjust. So Jesus lifted up and saw no one standing there but the woman. He said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin 
no more. You might underline those same three words. We've just seen those, have we not? Sin no more. Now, folks, before I transition and I give you the title for tonight's message, let me drive this point home as ably as I can. I don't know how ably that will be, but I'm going to try my best. The modern perception of our Lord Jesus Christ tends to be in so many circles and in so many hearts and minds of people that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Love, Jesus is so loving and His grace is so strong that it really doesn't matter whether or not we sin. It really doesn't matter whether or not we perpetuate sin. We live in sin. That really doesn't matter because you know what? God loves you. Jesus came on a mission to save you. And their love and that mission are so great that it just doesn't matter about you and your sins. You just live the way you want to live and Jesus is going to save you. Now, as popular as that conception of Jesus Christ may be in our day and time, let me honestly ask you, does that really make sense in light of these two interactions that Jesus has had, one with that man in chapter 5 and the other with this woman here in chapter 8? In both instances, the Lord of love, the Prince of Peace, the Savior of our souls. And I, I say that sincerely. Jesus is all of that. But in both instances, Jesus turned to the man and to the woman and he said, sin no more. What I want you to see about the love of God and about the mission of Jesus Christ comes to us expressly clear from Matthew's pen. And so we've been studying the writings of John. But now back up and go with me to Matthew chapter 1 and notice verse 21. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Here the angelic messenger is speaking to Joseph and says, And she, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people. Now, this is a, a critical place to make a marking in your Bible. Circle that little four-letter word, from. Why did Jesus heaven leave and come to earth below? Why? Why did Jesus come here? Well, according to the angel in verse 21, he came to save his people, circle it, from. Not in their sins. Folks, this is critical. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Now, in the Greek text, this doesn't mean a whole lot to many of us, and that's fine, but I want to share it with you. The Greek preposition here is oppo. If you wanted to jot it down in English letters, it would be A-P-O. But oppo in the Koine Greek language is the preposition, get this, of separation. Separation. And in fact, it can be better translated in many instances. It can be translated away from. Now, put that in this statement here in Matthew 1.21 and you begin to see what the mission of Jesus Christ was about. What the will of God who loves you more than Cliff Goodwin can stand up here and verbalize what the love of God is all about. The love of God is about separating you from your sins. 
The love of God is about saving you away from your sins. Not saving you in your sins while you just live any way you want to live and, and do any ungodly deed you wish to do. That's not the will of God. That's not how the love of God nor the mission of Christ works, if you will. Now, I've said all of that, and I think I've, I've set that case up uh, conclusively. I don't think I've left any room for doubt. I hope not. But now let me give you the title of our study tonight, because I want you to know on the front end God's love. I want you to know and appreciate Christ's mission. And I want you to know that everything else I say the rest of the night falls in line with the love of God and the mission of Christ. Everything else I'll say tonight. But here's our title. Is homosexuality and transgenderism accepted by God? Question mark. Now that's our title. Is homosexuality and transgenderism accepted by God? Now folks, it is troubling to me. It is troubling to me to hear of some of the instances of weakness, not just in the denominational world, but to hear of some of the instances of weakness on this point among these people. Now, hopefully not anyone here tonight, but you know what? A crowd this size, there just might well be someone seated here tonight who in your heart of hearts, you've begun having doubts. Oh, you've seen so much on the television You've heard so many of your friends or co-workers talk about loved ones who are living, quote, an alternative lifestyle. You, you, you've heard so many so-called uh, personal stories and, and, and all these things. And so maybe, just maybe, there's somebody even seated here tonight among us, among God's people now, that might be growing soft and weak and doubtful on this subject. Well, we're going to address it tonight in love. We're going to address it tonight in the love of God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, down to this earth on a mission to save homosexuals. He sent His Son down to this earth even to save those poor, pitiable souls who would go so far as to practice transgenderism. God wants them saved. Jesus came to save them, but I'm here to tell you, it's just like we've seen already in three different passages. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners away from their sins, not to save sinners in their sins. So now we've got two or three more points. Point number two, let's move next and let's talk for a moment about the formation of the human family. The formation of the human family. If we're really going to study that biblically, you know where we have to go. We have to go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Let's begin actually in chapter 2. As you open your Bibles back with me to Genesis 2 and verse 18, perhaps you've wondered, are there two different creation accounts in Genesis because preacher, I, I read chapter 1 and, and it goes through all six days culminating on the seventh day when God rested. And then I go into chapter 2 and it's just like there's a separate account. Well, no, not really. But what, what does happen, and if you've ever wondered, here's the answer. 
What does happen in chapter 2 is Moses, the inspired penman of the book of Genesis, having written what we know as chapter 1, the Holy Spirit then guided Moses, as it were, to take a step back and, and to give us a specific panorama, or, or not a panorama, a snapshot of day 6. And so it's only one creation account, but everything you read about in chapter 1, in chapter 2, it is necked down to a recapitulation, if you will, of, of day 6, the creation of man. All right, now look at that, verse 18. This happened on day 6. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help better and helper. Meat better suitable for him. Now, folks, this is not Cliff Goodwin. This is simply the Bible reading right out of Genesis 2. But understand that God knew man's need. God was well aware of it. And, and we might read Genesis 2.18 as if this just dawned upon God at the time. That's not the case. God knew all along what he was going to do. But this is recorded for our benefit. So that we know what God did on day six and why he did it on day six. He was addressing man's problem of being alone. And I don't want to beat a dead horse and I'll try my best not to do that by overstating the obvious tonight. But can we not lovingly point out, please, with love and respect and with open honesty, that when God saw man's condition, which he knew, he foreknew, and when God set to address man's condition, that God created not another man for Adam, but God created woman for the man. Can we not see that? Move down with me to verse 21 here in chapter 2. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I wish that we could hear the inflection. I wish that we could hear the volume. I wish that we could actually hear Adam's voice as he said those words in verse 23. I, I'm prepared to tell you this is my opinion. But on this occasion right here, Adam must have been as happy as perhaps anybody in the history of the world has been. Can you imagine? He, he, he's looked at all these animals. They've gone by him and he's noticed that these animals had their respective mates. He's also obviously noticed that he did not, and now God immediately addresses that problem. And I just can't imagine how thrilled, how absolutely thrilled Adam must have been when he looked upon his wife for the first time, and he uttered these words. Now, I believe at the end of verse 23, I believe that's when Adam quit speaking. I believe this is the Holy Spirit now causing Moses to give this inspired commentary in verses 24 and 25. Notice what's written. Therefore, based on this account, what Moses does in the book of Genesis is he goes all the way back to the formation of the human family. He goes all the way back to Eden, all the way back to creation, 
all the way back to the very first man, Adam, and she who will be the very first woman, Eve. God goes all the way back. Moses goes all the way back in writing this. And because of how God handled this, because of how God ordered the human family and how God addressed man's need for companionship and otherwise, Moses says, therefore, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Again, not beating a dead horse, but we live in a day where apparently the simplest things need to be accentuated. He, he shall cleave not unto another man, but he shall cleave unto his wife, woman, and they shall be one flesh. And the Bible says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Folks, we go all the way back to the biblical account of creation and we see that the formation of the human family by God now, this is the wedding ceremony that God conducted himself. Can you imagine that? All of us in the audience tonight who are married, do you remember the man who conducted the wedding ceremony for you and your spouse? You remember him? I remember mine. Okay. Can you imagine having God do your wedding? And that's essentially what's happened here in Genesis 2. God united male and female. Now, let's talk about this idea of gender, okay? For this, we do back up into chapter 1. Back up with me into Genesis chapter 1 and notice verse 27. Again, this happened also on day 6. In chapter 2, we've just read a snapshot of this, an amplification of what happened in chapter 6 that's alluded to in chapter, on day 6, alluded to in chapter 1. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now this is God's, this is not Cliff Goodwin. Friends, in one sense, Cliff Goodwin has no dog in this fight except this. That I love the God of heaven. I believe his word, the Bible, to be inspired. I believe Jesus Christ to be the only hope for humanity. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And I believe that every man, woman, and child will one day stand before Jesus in judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Now, because of those things, you might say, I have a dog in this fight. But I want you to know that this order, this creation, it's not Cliff Goodwin's doings. Cliff Goodwin doesn't have anywhere near the wisdom, much less the ability to form something as glorious as the human home. Are you kidding me? You don't know me very well. This is God's order. And from the beginning, what did God say about gender? He says, I've created them male and female. Someone says, well, preacher, that sounds awfully binary. Friends, you can call it binary. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But that's just the way it is. God created male and female. Now, let me show you a verse that's very interesting that helps us to somewhat see how does humankind get from Genesis 1:27, God's creating male and female and forming thereby the human family. How do we get from that? To where we are today where supposedly there are scores 
of so-called genders or gender identifications. How in the world do we get from point A to point today? How in the world do we do that? Look with me to Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29. Ecclesiastes 7, 29. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright. Now you go all the way back to the beginning. You go all the way back to Eden. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Guess how God made man? Upright. God made man upright. So Cliff, when God made them male and female, was that upright? That was upright. But they have sought out many schemes. I think the old King James says something like inventions, but schemes here is a better translation. In short, in, in a very simplistic summary, that's how we get from Genesis 1.27, male and female ordered and created by God Almighty Himself to today where we have a mess, pardon the expression, but we have a mess known as transgenderism. And folks, what it boils down to and what it will boil down to for your eternity, eternity, and for mine and for all those around us, is we will have to come to a point in our hearts where we make a decision. I can't make this decision for you, and you cannot make this decision for me, but each one of us will make a decision, yay or nay, and then we'll stand before God one day and give an account according thereto. But we've got to make a decision whether or not we're going to accept the teachings of God's Word and respect His authority on this matter above everything else or whether we're going to buck it and stand before God condemned. And I want you to know this has nothing to do with negating the love of God. No, 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 no. God loves homosexuals. God loves transgendered peoples. This has nothing to do with the mission of Christ in, in the sense of undermining the mission of Christ. Jesus left the glories of heaven coming down to this low land of sin and sorrow to seek and to save the lost. He went to the cross and in His body, 1 Peter 2.24, in His body He bore the penalty for every homosexual sin, for every transgendered sin. Jesus bore the penalty in His body. Folks, everybody that's lost in eternity, not just homosexuals and transgendered folks, Everybody, every sinner that is unsaved and lost in eternity, it will have been over Jesus Christ's dead body. He did everything He could do to turn, to turn sinners, all sinners, not just homosexuals and transgendered folks, Drunkards and liars and idolaters and, and those practicing division and, and thieves, all sinners, murderers. Jesus has done everything He could do by going to the cross, by paying that price. He has done everything He could do to manifest and to demonstrate the love of a gracious God and thereby to turn sinners away from their sins. He has done everything He can do. And God forbid, but if you and I are lost, it will be over Jesus Christ's dead body.
It will not be his fault. It will be mine. It will not be his fault. It will be yours if we are lost. Folks, notice the formation of the human family. Now, point number three tonight. Point number three, if you're writing notes, write down human sexual relationship. Human sexual relationship. Let me tell you what what scares me about the Lord's people. Those of our brethren who are already softening on this biblical subject, and, and we're about, we've already seen the Bible addresses it, and we're really about to see the Bible addresses it. But our brethren who are already softening on this biblical subject, they are doing nothing but going the way of so many in the denominational world already. I want to share with you, this really happened. This happened between four and six weeks ago in my life, Cliff Goodwin's life. I was in my wife's clinic, and I was speaking with a customer who had come in. And this customer was a part of a very prominent denomination. In fact, it's a denomination that if you've been watching any kind of religious headlines, they are about to burst and split right in half. And you know why this leading denomination is about to split? It's over this matter of homosexuality and like issues. And so he and I struck up a conversation and we were talking there in the clinic. And I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but I remember this and as long as I live, I don't think I'll ever forget it. He looked at me and he said, you know what? He said, I've been in denomination X and he told me the denomination he'd been in. He said, I've been in Denomination X 40 years. 40 years. And he says, I cannot remember ever hearing a sermon on sexual immorality. And he was serious. And what little I know about the man, I believe the man to be telling the truth. I don't think he had any axe to grind. I don't, I don't think he had any reason to lie or be dishonest. In fact, if I were in his shoes, I would have been ashamed. I, I, I was taken aback. So he had nothing to gain by lying to me. He says, I have been in this denomination 40 years. And he says, I have never, or at least I don't remember, ever hearing a sermon on sexual immorality. And look where it's got that group. And in some of our own pulpits, God forbid, and God forgive us, in some of our own pulpits, gospel preachers are muzzled and are not allowed to address matters such as adultery, such as homosexuality, such as fornication, such as marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And folks, I'm here to tell you, if you do not let the gospel run, and let the gospel run freely, we'll see God's people go down and wind up in the same shape that these denominations of men are finding themselves in. This is not about love. In fact, let me back up. It's got everything to do with love. It's got everything to do with love. There is no bigger hypocrisy, no bigger hypocrisy than to look at a homosexual or a transgendered person living in their sins and to look at them and say, I love you. 
I love you so much that I'm willing to tolerate your sin and condone it and say, you're all right. That is damnable hypocrisy. How can you say you love somebody when their lifestyle is clearly antithetical? It is opposite to the teaching of God's Word. It's condemned by God Himself and you don't have the love, you don't have the courage to take them by the hand and say, please, please consider this. God commands you and me and all of us to repent. So yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. It's everything to do with love. Everything to do with love. Let's talk about the human sexual relationship. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Notice the Bible says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now in this verse, when we talk about marriage being honorable in all, it is understood against the backdrop of the rest of Scripture that we're talking about God-ordained marriage. Genesis 2 the way that God created marriage, the way that God ordered marriage, marriage is honorable before all. And then the writer says, the bed. Circle that word bed. Some of you here tonight are in the medical field. Some of you I know are nurses. Perhaps we may have a physician or two among us. I don't know. But those of you in the medical field, you might be familiar with the medical term or one of the medical terms for sexual intercourse, coitus. That is taken right here from this Greek word translated bed. When it says that the bed is undefiled, it is talking about the sexual relationship between husband and wife in God-ordained marriage. The Hebrews writer looks at that, so to speak, and says, that's pure. That's holy. That's good. That's undefiled. So much, in fact, that you can jot down Romans 10 and verse, or Romans 9 and verse 10. And it's the same word used of Rebecca in Romans 9 and verse 10. It's the word conceived. Talking about her marital relationship with Isaac, whereby she conceived. Koite, the marriage bed. Now, if in marriage, God ordained marriage, human sexual relationship is blessed. It's good, it's holy, it's undefiled. Then what does that imply about human sexual relationship outside the parameters of God-ordained marriage? What does that imply? You don't have to worry about what it implies because the rest of the verse explicitly tells you what it means. But fornicators, including sexual relationship outside of marriage, it includes a lot more than that. It includes bestiality. It includes homosexuality. We'll see that in a moment. It includes lesbianism. We'll see that in a moment. But basically, it's sexual relationship outside the realm of God-ordained marriage. Fornicators and adulterers. Adultery, in the literal sense, it involves fornication, but it involves fornication when one or both of the parties involved are married to somebody else. And so... All adultery, physical adultery, all adultery is fornication, but not necessarily all fornication is adultery. If it doesn't involve the married person who is violating his or her marriage vow, it's not necessarily adultery, but it's still fornication. 
Circle that word judge at the end of the verse. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. The word judge there is the same word translated in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12. You can jot it down or you can turn over there whichever you'd like. But it's the same word translated in 2 Thessalonians 2.12 as damned. Condemned. What is God's view toward all human sexual relationship outside of God-ordained marriage between man and his rightful scriptural wife? What is God's view of that? And God lovingly warns us in His Word. He says, it will be condemned. Do you ever think about the day of judgment? I know that sounds like an off-the-wall question. Do you ever think about that? Every one of us ought to think about the day of judgment. Every man, woman, and child ought to. And we ought to do it pretty regularly. Because the fact of the matter is, it's coming one day. I don't know when. Anybody who tells you they know when, they've just told you a fallacy. They don't know when either. But I don't have to know the when to know that it's not an if. He's coming. He's coming in judgment. Have you ever thought about the day of judgment? Now, not only will the fornicators and the adulterers be condemned on that day, those who refuse to repent now, Okay? The, blood and, the blood of Jesus and the grace of God can wash away all those sins. If men and women will come out of their sins, if men and women will repent and obey the gospel, man, they can be saved. They can be saved just as quickly as you and I or anyone else. So we understand that. But on that day of judgment, not only will the fornicators and the adulterers be condemned forever and ever, but you know that if Cliff Goodwin stands there on that day, now I'm talking about this one right here. If I stand there on the day of judgment not having lovingly told the truth about this or any other soul-saving matter, do you know who else will be condemned? Take a wild guess. Cliff Goodwin. Now, I love you folks. Okay, we got a brother back home, Joe Tom. Joe Tom works in heavy equipment. He, he's got a dangerous job. And sometimes when I'm around Joe Tom, I'll say, Joe Tom, be careful. He said, look, brother. He says, you don't have to tell me to be careful. He says, nobody loves me more than me. <laughs> he says, I want to be careful. I want to be safe. Well, here, I love all of you folks. You might not feel this way right this moment. I don't know your heart. You might not think it, but I'm telling you, it takes love to stand up and preach the message that I'm preaching tonight. I love you, and I want you to go to heaven, but here, let me say this too. I love Cliff Goodwin. And I may or may not be able to assist you to go to heaven, but I am the only soul that I can absolutely get to heaven by the grace of God. But I've got to preach His Word and be faithful. Because that's my work. That's my role. And so, friends, I have to tell it like it is. Now, someone says, well, Cliff, you said a moment ago something that you threw out there that, that I want to see proven. You said that fornication, mentioned here as fornicators, you said that includes homosexuality. Yes, it does. Turn over. I need to give you that reference. Turn over to Jude, verse 7. The little fiery epistle known as Jude. And notice here in Jude verse 7, as we read about 
the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know them from of old, Genesis 19, and the other cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over, and here's the word, a form of the word, fornication. Okay, in fact, this, this is, I, I use the New King James a lot, but I just wish the New King James would not translate fornication sexual immorality. I wish they would just keep it as fornication. Okay? That's what the word is. That's what the word means. They, they gave themselves over to fornication and gone after strange flesh. Now you know the account in Genesis 19. You know Sodom and Gomorrah. What was strange about that? Folks, that's not hard now. The only thing that would cloud our hearts and minds on that question is having been prejudiced. The only thing that would cloud our hearts and minds when I stand here right now and I ask you, what, what about that scenario in Genesis 19 would have been strange? You should know immediately what was strange about that is you had men who wanted to abuse other men sexually. You had men that even when they were... All, now, I can't understand Lot. If you, want, if you want to ask me a question for which I don't have an answer, there it is. Someone says, what was Lot thinking when, when Lot offered to give his daughters? Cliff Goodwin says, I don't fully know, okay? But when you have a group of men that turn down women so that they can sexually abuse other men, yeah, yeah, that's strange. But right here, what I want you to see in Jude verse 7 is it's all classed under fornication. Why? Because it is human sexual relationship outside of God-ordained marriage. That's why. That's why. All right, one more point tonight, point number four. And that is if you're making notes, and I, I know this is going a little bit long, but I've got to get it in here. I've not done my job. Point number four. Write down the New Testament condemns homosexual behavior. The New Testament condemns homosexual behavior. I, I read an article even this morning in, in studying up for this lesson tonight where someone was cited about saying, well, Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Jesus never said anything about it. That's wrong. Let me tell you two reasons why that's wrong. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus did address the home. He went all the way back to the beginning. He went all the way back to Genesis 2. And Jesus said and pointed out that from the beginning or from the creation, God created them male and female. He addressed that. And when, God gave, when Jesus gave his divine stamp of approval to the God-ordained plan that had already been put in place for thousands of years, by implication, he addressed and condemned any other arrangement. So letter A, it's untrue and misleading for someone to say, well, Jesus never addressed the topic of homosexuality. That's not true. Letter B, there's another reason why that's not true. After Jesus had ascended back up to the Father, we read about last night, Acts chapter 1 and verse, to, verse 2, what did he give to the apostles? He gave his commandments to the apostles. To such an extent that as we also noticed last night in 2 Corinthians 13 about verse 3, when an inspired apostle spoke, it was Christ speaking through that apostle. 
1 Corinthians 14, 37, what an inspired apostle wrote, he says, were the commandments of the Lord. And so, no, 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 sir, no, ma'am, let's not be dishonest. Jesus Christ has definitely addressed the issue of homosexuality. Let's look at two passages, and the lesson will be yours. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile. Another word for vile is evil. God gave them up. He, he let them go their own way. They were determined and God let them go their own way toward evil passions. Now Paul elaborates. Paul is an inspired apostle which means that Jesus was speaking through him, which means the very things that he wrote are the commandments of the Lord. So he elaborates. For even their women, so this addresses lesbianism, even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now, I'll admit something to you. If the context just stopped right there at verse 26, and that's all we had, there might be a little bit of room for people to scratch their heads and say, what in the world is he talking about? How did the women exchange the natural use for something that was against them? What is he talking about? But the context doesn't stop, so let's read the next verse, verse 27. Circle this word, likewise. That is a key term. Because what he's describing in verse 27 for the men... The word likewise is connecting it back to verse 26 for the women. So we're just seconds away from knowing exactly what he was talking about in verse 26. Likewise, also the men, the males, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men. Folks, that's homosexuality. Now that we know this is male homosexuality, we know that verse 26, the word likewise, we know verse 26 is female lesbianism. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Someone says, well, Cliff, you're saying God doesn't love homosexuals. No, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that God loves homosexuals more than homosexuals can realize He loves them. And that He sent His only begotten Son to this world to die. To take away their sexual sins just like He died to take away anybody else's and everybody else's sexual sins if they'll come to Jesus. If they'll repent and, and forsake that, that ungodly behavior and give their hearts and their lives to Jesus in obedience to the gospel, Jesus Christ died to save their souls. What's really troubling about the context of Romans 1 is if you go down to the very last verse of the chapter, verse 32 is after describing this and after giving a veritable laundry list of other sins, okay? Paul wasn't just picking on homosexuals. He gives a veritable laundry list of all kinds of sins right here. And then in verse 32, he says, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, 
Not only do the same, not only the practitioners who do the same, but also those who approve of those who practice them. Now friends, in the modern denominational world, much of which is about to split right down the middle over this issue, there are a lot of people who might not be condemned for practicing homosexuality, but according to this verse, they stand condemned before God this very night because they approve of it. And what breaks my heart and scares me to death at the same time is the thought that I might, God forbid, but I just might have a brother or a sister who secretly in his or her heart is doing the same thing. They approve of it. They want to justify it. They, they want to say it's all right. They just want to look the other way and let's just not make it an issue. Please don't you ever tell any homosexual you know, please don't you ever tell them that you love them. If that's your attitude. Because you don't love them. You've got God's word on the matter that it is sinful, it is condemned by God. And you're willing to put your arm figuratively, if not literally, around their shoulder and to escort them down the pathway to condemnation. Please, ma'am, please, sir, don't you ever tell that person you love him or her. Because it's just not true. It's just not true. I want to close with a passage of Scripture that I think is some of the most exciting in the New Testament. We're going to close not with good news. We're going to close tonight with great news. Close with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Tonight we've talked about the love of God and the mission of Christ. We've talked about the formation of the human family as God ordained it from the very beginning of time. We've talked about God's plan and God's requirement for human sexual relationships. And now we've talked about the New Testament's condemnation of homosexuality. But look with me in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. This is the greatest news I can give you tonight. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's, Paul's telling us, there are folks that are not going to heaven. May we paraphrase it that simply? Don't you know that there are some folks who are not going to heaven? Now that's sad. That's lamentable. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Both of those two terms, homosexuals and sodomites, are talking about these kinds of relationships. I'll let you study that more deeply on your own. Verse 10. Go on to verse 10. Thank you. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. See, again, Paul's not picking on homosexuals. And I want you to understand not, I'm not picking on homosexuals. I want homosexuals to be saved just like the thieves, just like the greedy people. See, some of these are what we would call respectable sins. There will be people in hell over greed, but in our life and in our world today, that's a respectable sin. He's not greedy, he's just driven. <laughs> he's not greedy, he's just ambitious. He's not greedy, he, he just works hard. Well, God knows the heart. If God looks down and says you're greedy, you're lost. Covetous. 
nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you say, well, Cliff, you built this up. You said this is the best news of the night. So far, it's not looking too good. But it is in the next verse. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. You know what? In the church of Christ, in ancient Corinth, almost 2,000 years ago, do you know apparently there were reformed homosexuals? Apparently there were reformed and penitent former sodomites. Just like there were reformed drunkards and reformed idolaters, reformed adulterers. Such were some of you, now praise God, but you were washed by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I want to say it one more time tonight. This is not about whether or not Jesus loves you. This is not about whether or not Jesus loves the homosexual or the transgendered person. It's not, there's no question about this. What this is about is the same with every other topic on sin. It's about whether or not the homosexual or the transgendered person can be brought to love Jesus. Now that's the issue. But if they can, oh praise God. Praise God. If they can, every sin will be washed away by the blood of His Son. I believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. I preached an entire lesson on the Lord's Supper Sunday morning. Every time we put that fruit of the vine to our lips, each and every Lord's Day, we ought to be thankful that the blood can wash away the sins. The propitiation for the sins, according to John, 1 John 2, 2, the sins of the whole world. Amen. Folks, we've got lost folks out here. You're going to walk out these doors in a few minutes, I promise. If the Lord lets us live. You're going to walk out these doors and we're going back into our world tomorrow. Our world at work, our world at school, our world and our communities around about us. And we have people lost in sin. They may or may not be homosexuals. They may be drunks or idolaters or whatever. But there are people lost and God help us to bring the gospel, the good news. That if they'll believe on Jesus Christ, John 8, 24. If they'll repent and turn away from whatever practice of sin there is in their lives, whatever it is, give it to the Lord and turn away from it. Luke 13, 3. If they'll confess with their mouths that Jesus is who He said He was, the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And if they'll submit to the Lord Jesus in baptism, water, immersion, for the purpose of having their sins washed away, not by the water, but by the blood they contact spiritually when they obey in that act, the Bible says that God will save them, 1 Peter 3.21, that God will add them to His church, Acts 2.47, and that they will be faithful members of the churches of Christ, Romans 16 and verse 16. And that's the best news I can give you tonight. 